perched high atop the San Francisco Hill of the same name, Alamo Square has the quintessential view of one of the world's great cityscapes. On nearby hills to the west rise Sutro Tower and the buildings of the University of San Francisco. But beyond these, the land around Golden Gate Park becomes flat as it approaches the Pacific at Ocean Beach. The Golden Gate itself isn't quite visible, though on a clear day you can spot the tops of the international orange towers of its iconic bridge. But it's the view to the east that draws the crowds, and that, thanks to the cinematic backdrop it presents and the many filmmakers who've taken advantage of it, you've probably seen even if you've never visited the city. The distant hills of Oakland and Berkeley mark the opposite side of San Francisco Bay, widely considered the finest natural harbor in the world. Inland of the bay is the city's financial district, crowned in classic American fashion by towering skyscrapers, including the spire of the Transamerica Pyramid. Between downtown and the square is a series of steep-walled hills blanketed in residential neighborhoods and traversed by cable cars. And in the foreground of all this are the Painted Ladies, the best-known and most beloved Victorian houses in the U.S. True to the era in which they were built, their exercises in decoration and color, an architectural pattern repeated in houses throughout the city. It's tempting to look on the Painted Ladies as genteel survivors of the first flowering of one of the world's great cities, but when they were built in the later half of the 19th century, they were interpreted very differently. Some critics saw them as gaudy and tasteless, completely lacking in understatement, and the mark not of a cosmopolitan city just starting to emerge onto the world stage, but of the wildest of Wild West towns. Because in the Victorian era, that's exactly what San Francisco was. The boisterous, decadent, raucous portal between the outside world and the remote goldfields of the Sierra Nevada. Straddling this boundary made San Francisco the chaotic place it was in the Gold Rush era. It also brought vast wealth and opportunity to San Franciscans, and it was this rollicking, growing, and increasingly wealthy city that gave rise to the Painted Ladies. Today's city may no longer be the gateway to the goldfields, but it still sits astride many natural boundaries, between continents, between fresh and salt water, between land and sea. As you stand in Alamo Square, no matter which view you're taking in, you're looking at a landscape shaped by the city's position on the edge of everything. Just as San Francisco's first major growth spurt was fueled by its role as an economic and social crossroads, its physical setting has been molded by the interactions between huge natural cycles. These interactions can happen so slowly and on such huge scales that they can be hard to notice in most places. But in the Bay Area, their fingerprints are clear, paradoxically making this huge metropolis one of the best places in the world to see our planet's gears turning. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this, unbelievably, is the beginning of the show's third season, which we're starting off with a bang by exploring the vast natural forces that affect life, landscapes, and culture along the California coast. We'll be taking a deep dive into one of these forces in particular, the cold California current that flows parallel to the shore. Over the next three episodes, we'll flow with the current from north to south, from the Redwood Coast, where the sea and land are inextricably linked, to the kelp forests and undersea canyons of Monterey Bay, where marine life is staggeringly diverse, to Big Sur and the Channel Islands, where humans have interacted with the ocean for millennia. But the California current doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's just one of the many enormous forces that shape life on this beautiful and diverse coastline. And before beginning our journey, it's worth understanding what some of these forces are. 
It might be tempting to think of them as separate from each other, which is totally reasonable. Certainly, there aren't many obvious connections between, say, the behavior of the sea lions living off of Fisherman's Wharf and the bedrock geology of Telegraph Hill rising above them. And indeed, for years, scientists compartmentalized natural processes into different fields of study. The modern field of Earth system science, though, is based on the idea that our world is shaped by multiple forces, often named with the suffix sphere, as in biosphere, referring to living organisms, and that these forces interact in ways that leave indelible marks on our world. Nearly all of them have been and continue to be at work in the Bay Area. Picking up right where I left off in the introduction, with the Painted Ladies and the Wild West City in which they were built, we'll start with one of the most massive of these spheres, and the one that's perhaps most inextricably linked to the city's biggest period of growth during the heady days of the gold rush. south of the Powell BART station in the middle of downtown San Francisco, you'll find a building whose white columns and blocky shape make it a pretty standard U.S. government structure. But the old mint is a testament to just how strong the city's connection is to the lithosphere, the Earth system composed of our planet's surface and the rocks that make it up. It was built in 1874 to replace an older structure that opened in 1854, a mere six years after the U.S. seized control of California from Mexico in 1848. That very same year, the soon-to-be state's history changed forever when gold was discovered in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. Despite attempts to keep it hushed up, word quickly got out, and in 1849 a stampede of prospectors came from across the globe in hopes of striking it rich. We met some of these 49ers in the final episode of last season. The Chinese immigrants that found themselves dashed against the rocks of xenophobia and racism, and the Australians that brought the eucalyptus trees that would become an icon of the California coast. The government saw San Francisco as the logical spot for a new mint, just as many of the new arrivals saw more practical opportunities in town than in the gold fields. As populations soared, the city started creeping from the shore of the bay up the steep hills. The picturesque result is some of the most vertically oriented neighborhoods in the country, from Alamo Square to the stairways and tower of Telegraph Hill, to the bustle of Chinatown, nestled partway up the slope of Knob Hill, all of which are gorgeous and all of which can be exhausting to walk around. The increasingly wealthy city found a solution to this in 1873 with its cable car system, three lines of which still run today, though now they mainly serve tourist hordes rather than San Franciscans. Neither miners nor geologists could have known this in the 19th century, but the gold that fueled the city's growth and the hills beneath it had the same origin. If you were to bore down beneath the old mint, you'd find a mashup of sediments that have been deformed and altered by high pressure. Zoom out far enough and you'd see that this series of rocks, named the Franciscan Complex by geologists in honor of the city, forms a long, thin line along the coast, looking for all the world like layers of peanut butter and jelly slathered onto an open-faced sandwich. It wasn't until well into the 20th century that it became clear how these rocks formed. That was when the radical new theory of plate tectonics came on the scene, suggesting that the Earth's surface, the lithosphere, was broken into several giant plates, and that those plates, driven by the hot interior of our planet in ways that geologists are still working out the details of, moved through time. This movement is slow, on the order of millimeters each year, 
but over the vastness of time, it's enough to alter the face of the planet. At the edges of plates, one of three things can happen. Plates can collide, plates can move apart, or plates can move alongside one another. The type of boundary determines the types of features that form there, and in this part of California, the land has been shaped by two of the three possible processes. For millions of years, while dinosaurs roamed the land, a small Farallon plate underwent a slow collision with the massive North American plate. The denser Farallon was pushed beneath North America, and as it was, the ocean sediments and island chains it carried with it smooshed onto the side of the continent like bugs on a windshield, in a process known as accretion. This is what gave rise to the jumbled and transformed rocks below San Francisco's streets. Further inland, the remnants of the Farallon plate melted and bubbled back up towards the surface in the form of magma. This same process is still at work today in the far north of the state, and into Oregon and Washington, where the result is the spectacular Cascade Range, crowned by volcanoes such as Lassen and Shasta. In ancient California, though, the magma never made it to the surface, cooling underground and later being exposed by erosion to form the granite peaks of the Sierra Nevada. Among the many minerals melted into this magma was gold, and as the molten rock cooled, it eventually reached a temperature where this gold solidified. This caused the concentrated veins that the 49ers were prospecting for. Unbeknownst to them, as they sailed into the bay to make their way up the hills, they were moving from one plate to another. In effect, the bay area straddles two continents, and the border is a surprisingly clear one where it emerges onto land both north and south of the city. That's because, several million years ago, the nature of California's plate boundary changed radically, which would eventually have dramatic and ironically dire consequences for this city built on geological wealth. You may get to see the Bay Area's most important and most famous geological feature before you even arrive. Just inland from the San Francisco airport, directly under the flight path under the right conditions, is a strangely linear lake. You may also spot it from I-280, which parallels it on its way south towards Silicon Valley. Prior to 1868, when a dam was built here, it wasn't a lake, but a valley, known to the Spanish first as the Cañada de San Francisco, and later renamed in honor of St. Andrew, or San Andres to the missionaries. Today, the reservoir has been anglicized into Lake San Andreas, namesake of the infamous San Andreas Fault. A fault forms wherever pressure on rocks has caused them to move and crack. Many are very small and localized, but the San Andreas Fault is something else entirely. Inevitably, the last remnants of the old Farallon plate disappeared beneath the continent, and when they did, two of the largest plates on the planet, the Pacific and the North American, were left moving side by side. The Pacific is heading slowly to the northwest, while North America is moving towards the southeast. The shear zone that forms where they contact accounts for the long, straight valley that you can trace all along the California coast. It's especially obvious in two places near San Francisco, Tomales Bay and Bear Valley, which separate Point Reyes from the mainland of Marin County, and from Daly City towards Silicon Valley, where Lake San Andreas sits. Because the plates are traveling in opposite directions, to someone standing on the fault it would appear to be moving extremely quickly, on the order of a couple of inches a year. As the plates move, the massive amount of friction between them means that, in some areas, this movement gets stuck and pressure begins to build up. When that pressure is released, the results can be catastrophic, leading to huge, sudden offsets. 
One of the most spectacular examples is in Bear Valley, near the Point Reyes Visitor Center. In the early 20th century, this was pasture land, as indeed much of it still is, with fields separated by wooden fences. One of those fences was built directly across the fault line, and one memorable day, the pressure that had been building up along that line was released, and in an instant, the fence was broken and the two halves separated by 18 feet. The date was April 18, 1906, a red-letter day in San Francisco history, because the same movement of the San Andreas Fault that snapped the Bear Valley fence caused one of the largest and most destructive earthquakes ever to hit a major city. The Great San Francisco Earthquake and the fires that followed leveled pretty much all of the city, though by no means all of it. The Painted Ladies, for example, perched on the more solid bedrock of Alamo Hill, are survivors. Rebuilding began almost immediately, in many cases in the newly popular craftsman style, leading to a post-quake city that looked very different from its pre-quake self. Major earthquakes happened fairly regularly along the San Andreas Fault, and ever since 1906 this threat has loomed over the Bay Area and has added threatening overtones to the name San Andreas. It's certainly understandable that we would think about the fault in terms of its destructive potential, but this meeting of continents is also what gives the landscape its characteristic shape. The sideways movement of the San Andreas Fault gives us features like Tomales Bay and Lake San Andreas, while the older collision of the Farallon Plate forms San Francisco's hills and, far to the east, the granite domes of Yosemite. Features formed by interactions of the lithosphere tend to be so huge that they can really only be appreciated from a distance, from the air, or on a map. But other Earth systems, the ones that drape so many layers of structure on top of the lithosphere-built foundation, are more relatable, and one of them made it possible for San Francisco to become the Golden Gate in the first place. taken on its role of world gateway if not for its magnificent natural harbor, the importance of which remains clear in the lively transit hub of the ferry building, the working waterfront of the Embarcadero, and even the tourist schlock infesting the piers of Fisherman's Wharf. My favorite testament to the city's enduring connection to the ocean is its maritime museum, with its walls covered in Depression-era murals that are equal parts surrealism, art deco, and scientific illustration. These ties to the sea run deep, the indigenous Ohlone relied heavily on food gathered from between the tide lines. The Spanish founded a mission here with an eye to the bay. And the modern city's liberal, cosmopolitan reputation grew from its status as a major port. Its famously brown, murky waters, though, show that San Francisco Bay is much more than just an arm of the ocean. Just as the city sits atop two lithospheric plates, it also has its feet planted in both major components of the hydrosphere, the Earth system composed of our planet's liquid water, and this mingling of waters explains not only the bay's color, but its diversity of life and landforms. We'll spend the rest of this series in the salt water of the Pacific, so for now let's turn our eyes east to the incoming combined flow of the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers, which enter the bay at its northern end. These huge rivers collect water running off the mountain ranges further east, and en route to the bay traverse the expansive grasslands, now mostly farmland, of the Central Valley. On their way, they pick up huge amounts of soil and sediments, 
When the rivers mingle with the sea and the giant estuary that is San Francisco Bay, their flow decreases and everything they've been carrying downstream gets dumped into the water. These sediments are what give the bay its distinct color, which visitors often interpret as a sign of an unhealthy environment. And don't get me wrong, the bay has its major environmental issues, among them the fact that today the rivers don't just carry sediments from the valley, but pesticides, fertilizers, and other pollutants that have run off the fields. But the bay's murkiness predates industrial agriculture, and since time immemorial, the rivers have transported nutrients from far inland that would normally be rare at sea. This means that, historically, the parts of the bay in which sediments and nutrients were deposited were biodiversity hotspots, even along a coast that, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is already exceptionally rich in life. While much of the bay shore has been developed in the last century and a half, a few spots remain where you can get a sense of the coastlines and habitats shaped by the rivers and what they carry. The most accessible is the Don Edwards San Francisco Bay National Wildlife Refuge, another site, incidentally, that most travelers will first view from the air, since it's directly beneath the usual SFO flight path. It wouldn't be entirely fair to say that the south end of the bay was protected from any development, but the type of development that took place here was an unusual one. Before the growth of the modern city, the sediment-rich waters formed a series of broad mudflats that were an El Dorado for marine and terrestrial life alike. In the 20th century, our species took advantage of these shallows in a new way, by converting them into ponds for the evaporation of salt. While environmentally problematic in their own ways, these ponds are a better approximation of the natural, soft shoreline than almost anywhere else in the bay. Not only can the ponds be converted back to something like their natural state, but in the wildlife refuge, that's exactly what's been happening over the last several years, which have seen the restoration of one of the regional habitats defined by deposited sediment. It's harder to find evidence of another major depositional habitat, mainly because nearly every local example has long since been paved under. But it's what explains the major topographic change that happens as you move west from the hills of San Francisco's core towards the flatlands approaching Ocean Beach. Maybe the best place to appreciate this landscape is atop the museums of Golden Gate Park, either the tall lookout tower of the de Young Museum or the living roof of the California Academy of Sciences. The de Young will give you the better view, but the Academy provides a better sense of what was once here. Its artificial hummocks are an architectural echo of the shapes that used to dominate this part of the city, before it was a city. And the names of many of the native plants growing on them, such as American dune grass and common sand aster, hint at what they would have been made out of. On land, sand dunes are shaped mainly by wind, but the sand that makes them up, at least along the California coast, comes from rivers depositing their loads of sediment when they reach the ocean. Dune fields were once common near the mouths of rivers all along the coast, but their seaside locations meant that in many places they'd been built over, which is exactly what happened in San Francisco. There are some hints of the original dunes along Ocean Beach, but to see a relatively intact dune field, you need to head to the Monterey area. The main evidence remaining of this one is the low-lying, flat landscape of the city's western flank, all of which is underlain by sand. Those of you that know your Bay Area geography may be wondering something at this point. Today, the bay's major rivers, the presumed origin of Ocean Beach's sand, empty into the sea far to the northeast of San Francisco. So how did the sand make it all the way out to here to the outer coast? The answer lies in water's power to carve the land around it, the chaotic climate of the Ice Ages, and the gap bridged by the city's most famous landmark.
Golden Gate Bridge is that rare tourist magnet that actually lives up to its billing. It's appropriate for a city that spans so many natural boundaries that its best-known structure sits directly along the dividing line between the calm waters of the bay and the more treacherous, unpredictable open Pacific. The most scenic way to appreciate the bridge's role as portal is from a boat or island in the bay. The Sausalito Ferry makes an especially close approach, but you'll feel it more viscerally if you drive across its span. To the east is such a fantastic view of the Presidio, the city, and the bay that it must cause a huge number of accidents. This contrasts dramatically with the view to the west, where you might spot the crags of the Farallon Islands, and then nothing but ocean for thousands of miles. But crossing the Golden Gate Bridge drives home something else as well. It's big, not the longest in the bay by a long shot, but larger than it appears from the hills and wharfs of the city center. It was built on such a monumental scale because it was meant to close a major gap, not just between the city and its Marin County suburbs, but in the coastal highway system linking California and the Northwest. That gap, the Golden Gate itself, is every bit as much of a natural marvel as the bridge is a wonder of engineering, and it owes its existence to the erosive power of the hydrosphere. Because water doesn't just carry and deposit sediment, the other side of that coin is that the flow of water is constantly wearing away and sculpting the land around it. River erosion is where most of the bay's sediments come from, but waves and tides can wear away at coasts as well, and you might very reasonably assume that that's how the Golden Gate was shaped. But the former sand dunes that speak to the one-time presence of a river mouth on this part of the coast are just one of the lines of evidence that it was a river that punched its way out to the ocean, not the other way around. As Earth scientists' ability to visualize the shape of the bay's floor became clearer in the 20th century, the Golden Gate's origin became much clearer as well. During the last ice age, which peaked around 20,000 years ago, much of the world's water was locked up in huge ice sheets, causing sea levels to drop across the globe. At this time, the rivers emptying out of the Central Valley wouldn't have encountered the ocean at the current inland site, but at some now-submerged spot to the west of what would become San Francisco. To get there, they would have had to flow through a low point in the coast ranges, and as they did so, they'd have excavated that low point into a spectacular canyon. Had sea levels stayed low, the Golden Gate might be regarded alongside the Columbia Gorge and the Grand Canyon as one of the great river-carved features of the American West. But when the world began to warm again, the ice sheets melted and oceans started to rise, in this case flooding the Golden Gate, spilling into the valley that would become the bay, and pushing the mouth of the river up to its current spot. This makes the span of the city's iconic landmark a particularly scenic illustration of the landscape molding power of liquid water. But another, less tangible hallmark of San Francisco speaks to how the hydrosphere interacts with another major Earth system, with wide-ranging consequences for life in Northern California. advice in the previous segment for experiencing the Golden Gate Bridge comes with a major caveat. Your well-laid plans for viewing it may all collapse because of the most familiar of all Earth systems, the atmosphere. The cities of the West Coast are all associated with weather. Rain in Seattle and Portland, sun in San Diego and LA, and in the transition zone between, fog in San Francisco. Your average tourist's first reaction to a dense fog bank rolling in is one of frustration, it is, somewhat delightfully to me, anathema to selfie-taking. Confusion often follows, 
because that fog is likely to be at its worst during the summer, when you'd expect conditions to be nicest, especially in a state so strongly associated with balmy weather. I'd argue that appreciation should be your first response, and not just because there are a few more beautiful weather phenomena. Side note, I realize that my listeners may chalk up this pro-fog attitude to being a product of my Northwest upbringing, but see San Francisco's Asian Art Museum for evidence that this isn't just a me thing. Chinese artists have realized for millennia just how much a veil of mist can improve an already dramatic landscape. As with so much in the Bay Area, the fog is the product of huge earth systems coming into contact with one another. In this case, it's the seawater of the hydrosphere, the ultimate source of the fog, and the atmosphere, the system composed of the envelope of air surrounding our planet. Long hours of sunlight and the circulation of air at planet-wide scales combine to make warm summer days in most of California which gives you the first ingredient you need to evaporate water into clouds and fog banks. Put simply, the more heat you have, the more water will rise from the oceans into the atmosphere. The larger the difference in temperature between air and sea, the more evaporation, and therefore more fog, you're likely to get. This becomes very important in California because of a quirk of its seas. You can experience this quirk for yourself by dipping a toe in at any of the state's beaches, or by taking part in or watching the Hawaiian sport adopted so wholeheartedly by Californians, surfing. Head out to Ocean Beach, the most convenient surfing site in San Francisco, and you'll notice that the attire here is very different from what you might see on the shores of Oahu or Maui. In Hawaii, you don't need much in the way of specialized clothing to brave the waves, but in Central California, a wetsuit is an important part of every surfer's wardrobe. That's because the water here is cold, and not just cold relative to the warmth of a summer day, but really genuinely, often life-threateningly, cold. This makes an already strong temperature difference between hydrosphere and atmosphere even more extreme, giving San Francisco its signature weather. Why exactly is the ocean so cold here? With that question, we finally get to meet the main character of this series, the dominant force in the often unseen marine world of the California coast, the direct cause of ocean beaches chilled water in San Francisco's fog, and the indirect cause of everything from Yurok architecture and shipbuilding to the evolution of the seagoing weasel relative that would spark a globe-spanning economic scramble. It's the California Current, the marine river that parallels the coast from the dense rainforest of the northwest to the Southern California Chaparral. It, too, exists because of the interaction between atmosphere and hydrosphere. As Earth rotates, the air and the atmosphere moves with it in a series of eddies that form the major prevailing winds of the world. It's why, for example, the dominant winds flow west to east in North America, but east to west further north and south. These winds, as they blow across the oceans, pull water along with them, creating the great ocean currents that circulate water across thousands of miles. One of these travels from Japan towards North America, running into land off the northwest coast where it splits in two, the Alaska current flowing north, and the California current south. As the current moves along the coast, it not only brings a fresh supply of cold water from the north, but augments it by drawing from the chilled depths of the ocean. From BC to Baja, the result is a spectacularly rich marine ecosystem whose diversity peaks off of the central coast. To understand why exactly this current has such profound effects on marine life, we need to leave the shelter of the bay and head to the weather-beaten outer coast to the north which also shows how these effects can extend much further inland than you might expect. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes 
Watching the ships roll in And then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Thanks for joining me on this first episode of our Voyage with the Current. Over the next few weeks, we'll continue our dive into California's waters. First off the Redwood Coast, then in Monterey Bay, and finally down Big Sur towards Santa Barbara and the Channel Islands. Along the way, we'll encounter a staggering variety of life both at sea and on shore, and a number of connections to human cultures and economy, all along one of the world's most stunning coastlines. I hope you all will enjoy listening to this series as much as I enjoyed the road trip that inspired it. If so, you can make it easier for other listeners to find by rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice. And, of course, by telling your friends about it the old-fashioned way. Once the series is finished, I'll be posting details about it on Voyages' website, voyagepod.wordpress.com, where you can also reach me with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions. While you're there, you can learn about the music featured in each episode, which in this case consisted of pieces inspired by the Bay Area or composed by artists with Bay Area ties. I'm planning on being a lot more active on social media this season, so follow me at VoyagePod on Instagram or Facebook for images of the places I'll be covering, as well as a few odds and ends from trips I'll be taking this summer and fall. Just as fog reliably rolls in on a summer day in San Francisco, I hope you'll roll back here in a couple of weeks to continue this journey down the California coast and for all the voyages to come. I'm just gonna sit at the dock of a bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, I'm sitting on the dock of a bay Wasting time